Please note, later in this episode, we will discuss topics related to suicide. If you or a loved one may be considering suicide, please know that there is help out there. You can reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255 to speak with a counselor. And I think the ED boarding problem is definitely a marker of lack of resources in the community. Like, why do people come to the emergency department, right? And it's very difficult sometimes to hear to these parents saying, I don't know what else to do. I've tried this and I've tried that. I just don't know what else to do. And they come. And so I feel like we are kind of that last resort. When there's no access to care, they end up, you know, in the emergency department. You just heard from Dr. Shilpa Patel, who is a pediatric ED physician at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C., We'll hear more from her and other providers in this episode of While We Wait. I'm Sanya Ali. And I'm Avni Kulkarni. This is While We Wait, a podcast series where we tackle the mental health boarding crisis. Through the series, we will explore our fragmented mental health care system in the United States. Boarding is another word for waiting, a delay in care where patients are stuck often between the emergency room and the next step in treatment. These stories will paint a clear picture of why boarding is not, in fact, a surprising outcome for patients experiencing a mental health emergency. While we wait for solutions and while patients in crisis wait for help, let's take the time to unpack the reasons for why this is happening. In last week's episode, we learned about the patient boarding experience through Karen Broadhurst and her son's 36-day plight in the ED. Today, we will shift our focus to the provider perspective. Let's learn about the boarding crisis through the lens of a clinician. How do they decide which patient needs inpatient admission? What tools can they use to treat mental health crises? Let's find out. So let's start with our surroundings. There are often special considerations for where to place patients experiencing a mental health emergency. Some hospitals may have a designated psychiatric emergency room, while others may turn standard medical rooms into psychiatric rooms. Either way, the room is essentially bare. What exactly brings a patient here to begin with? Well, a behavioral health emergency could be a number of things. Behavioral health refers to both mental health and substance abuse. A common example of a mental health emergency is suicidal ideation, while substance abuse emergency could be severe alcohol withdrawal, just to name, you know, one example. It's important to remember that mental health emergencies may not be visible, and the line between our physical and mental health is often blurred. A mental health emergency could involve a teenager suffering from an eating disorder who passes out after purging a meal. In this case, the patient's chief complaint is syncope, which is the medical term for losing consciousness, but the underlying problem is an untreated mental health condition. Right now, the way psychiatric patients are processed is they're processed similar to medical patients, right? They're triaged, vital signs are taken. Then we do our initial ED emergency department physician evaluation, which I'm trying to make sure there's no medical emergency or acute medical need for that patient, whether it's like intoxication, dehydration. It's actually not a psychiatric emergency. It's a medical emergency. So we're trying to do that screening first. Like Dr. Shilpa Patel just explained. The way these crises are treated in the ED usually happens in a specific order. First, medical, then mental. 
Dr. Patel is an emergency medicine physician at Children's National Hospital in D.C. But before the patient sees Dr. Patel, they are triaged. Triaging is a fancy way of saying that a nurse assigns levels of urgency to patients presenting in the ED by level of severity. So, for example, an 80-year-old presenting with signs of a heart attack would likely be triaged as more urgent than a 20-year-old with a persistent fever. And this step is crucial to keeping the ED functioning smoothly. Usually, the emergency department staff will get some sort of heads up, either from the first responders en route or from the hospital front desk about what type of emergency is walking in next. Like Avni mentioned, making sure patients are medically stable is the first priority. This is where Dr. Patel comes in. Our goal is to make sure a child is safe and we do a safety evaluation. And if they're safe to be discharged for outpatient care, that is the ideal gold standard care for mental health, not inpatient care, not emergency department care. The initial assessment is completed by the nurse, who will take the patient's history and get vital signs. Dr. Patel will also take the patient's history, conduct a physical exam, and then may order lab results. The most common cause of altered mental status for patients without a history of dementia is from infection, most often caused by a urinary tract infection, or like we know it, a UTI. So, if Dr. Patel suspects a UTI, she will order a urine analysis test to confirm or rule out the diagnosis. For the psychiatric portion of her evaluation, she typically asks herself three main questions. The way we think about it when we're evaluating a patient in the emergency department, are they a risk to themselves? Are they a risk to others? And is there a acute behavioral change, paranoia, delusions, hallucinations, making it difficult for them to kind of go from day to day and thereby making themselves a danger to themselves or others because of that? The evaluation starts as soon as a patient walks through the door, and it really is a head-to-toe exam that reviews each body system, including respiratory, gastrointestinal, musculoskeletal, neurological, psychiatric, and the list goes on. Dr. Patel is trying to rule out medical mimics, which are secondary causes of psychosis. So is the patient experiencing delusions because they're diabetic and their blood sugar is too low? Or does the patient have undiagnosed schizophrenia? Both are causes of psychosis. If Dr. Patel and the clinician team decide that the patient has an acute mental status change that warrants acute psychiatric management, she will get to make the call for the psychiatric team. This is where we get to meet our second guest today, Dr. Megan Schott. She's a pediatric emergency psychiatrist who surveys the ED and helps doctors like Dr. Patel make decisions about her psychiatric patients. And it actually is why I actually got hired in this particular job is because where they were starting to see that our volumes kept increasing, but the number of beds in the hospital or in the community were remaining the same. And part of that is because we're reducing the mental health stigma and people are coming in trying to get treatment. But part of it, it was also because we don't have dedicated people giving them services and, and understanding the small nuances of things. Dr. Schott is also the only emergency psychiatrist at Children's National. It's extremely rare to have a psychiatrist physically present in the ED. So meeting Dr. Schott was really cool, kind of like learning that unicorns exist and then meeting one in person. The hospital I worked at didn't have an emergency psychiatrist and instead used telepsychiatry. So basically, the ED doctor would call the only freestanding mental health hospital in Northern Virginia so that a licensed behavioral health specialist could essentially FaceTime with the patient and conduct the psychiatric evaluation. 
Having a psychiatrist on scene is also extremely valuable for the ED because it helps the ED doctors make decisions about a specialty that they are not familiar with. This is not specific to psychiatry. For example, I've seen doctors call a code neuro, which is when they suspect that a patient is having a stroke. At this point, the ED physician will do their best to stabilize the patient and will also consult a neurologist who will review the patient's records and may even come down to perform a more detailed exam. The neurologist helps the ED physician determine whether the patient was really having a stroke, and if yes, then what are the next steps in care? But because of the severe shortage of psychiatrists, especially in EDs, ED doctors often make the decision on whether or not to admit a patient to high-level psychiatric care. And both Dr. Patel and Dr. Schott have discovered a trend. Let's hear from Dr. Schott first. Well, if you have a psychiatrist, you're going to have less borders in your emergency department because psychiatrists are more likely to be tolerant of sending some things out in the community because they kind of know what things are changeable, what things are not. And they are used to seeing these really high acuity patients and they're used to understanding what, what an inpatient stay can actually do to change things. Dr. Schott is basically saying that psychiatrists are better able to discern between those low, medium, and high-level risk cases given that they receive their training in this specialty. That higher risk tolerance increases conversion, which is a word that means how accurately physicians can identify who needs inpatient level of care and who doesn't. Good conversion skills kills two birds with one stone. It reduces boarding rates and it increases the ED's overall capacity to accept new patients to the unit. And not to mention, having psychiatrists in the ED means that these patients can actually get some sort of treatment during their stay. One hospital in Atlanta recently started a psychiatrist consult service in the ED in response to the increased rates of mental health-related visits. According to an interview with one of the doctors, it significantly helped boarding rates and allowed patients to start on medication during their ED visit, which is a huge step for the typical psychiatric treatment course. But because of the brief nature of most ED visits, doctors typically don't prescribe chronic medication like psychiatric meds which is another awesome plus for having a psychiatrist or a psychiatric team on site in the ED. By preventing one patient from boarding and occupying a bed for several days, we're opening it up for dozens of other patients and saving the ED thousands of dollars. On average, psychiatric beds are typically the least profitable bed in the hospital. And if that patient is boarding and waiting for that inpatient bed, the hospital ends up losing money. In fact, when we consider opportunity losses, it costs hospitals on average $2,264 US per psychiatric patient who is boarding. But unfortunately, just having a psychiatric evaluation doesn't mean that you're in the clear. In the next segment, let's learn about how your chances of boarding may quickly rise due to circumstances often beyond your control. At this point, Dr. Patel has given the order for a psych consult. But who exactly sees the patient next? Let's hear again from our emergency psychiatrist, Dr. Schott. It can be a nurse doing an eval. It can be a social worker doing an eval. It can be a psychiatrist doing an eval. It can be a, a psychologist doing an eval. If it's not a psychiatrist doing an eval, they're going to have to present the case to a psychiatrist who may or may not be in-house and who may or may not ever see the patient and to help them decide what to do with this case. Most cases are going to be staffed by nurses or social workers and then staffed over the phone with a psychiatrist. Dr. Schott's diagnosis relies on more than just her physical exam and psychiatric evaluation. 
Her decision is also impacted by the strength of the patient's support system. If she discharges this patient and they're plopped right back into the high-risk environment with little to no support, who's to say that this patient won't end up in the ED again the next day? How bad is it? How good are your supports? What can I change? If I send you home, what's the worst thing I could happen? If I keep you, what's the worst thing I could happen? And a lot of times people don't realize that keeping you in a hospital can actually make things worse, especially with behavioral issues. And when it comes to psychiatric care and boarding, there are a string of risk factors that increase the patient's likelihood of longer, more delayed stays. Lack of support system is one. Lack of insurance is another. Unlike all of the rest of medicine, you have to get the insurance off before they can get to the inpatient bed. And so that takes another few hours. It's like calling the insurance company, doing these things to make sure you will get paid for this day. This pre-certification process is called prior authorization, a topic we will get into in our next episode. But even having insurance is a huge plus for psychiatric patients in the ED and greatly reduces their chances of boarding. First, let's compare mental health patients and non-mental health patients. Presenting to the ED with the chief complaint of a psychiatric condition and being uninsured is a double whammy, because psychiatric patients are, on average, more likely to board than non-psychiatric patients, and patients who are uninsured or underinsured are more likely to board than patients with insurance. It's also important to consider this scenario. If a patient comes to the ED with a broken arm, for example, and doesn't have insurance, it might still be possible for that patient to get their arm treated. But that same patient, if they come to the ED with suicidal ideation, it's not clear that they will actually receive treatment for their concern and just might face delays in care. According to the research, being an uninsured patient with a psychiatric emergency increases boarding time on average by four hours compared to insured psychiatric patients. This is largely due to the fact that finding facilities that will accept admissions without insurance is exceptionally difficult. But let's suppose Dr. Shaw is able to call the patient's insurance company and verify that the patient is covered for inpatient psychiatric care. Now, a couple hours later, she can admit the patient to an inpatient psychiatric unit. Her next step is... More phone calls. Now Dr. Shaw actually has to go and find that inpatient psychiatric bed. This is where things get tricky. According to the CEO of the Community Mental Health Association in Michigan... It takes an average of 19 phone calls to place a psychiatric patient at a hospital somewhere in the state. At this point, the patient is just waiting, boarding, often without any treatment. Like we mentioned earlier, there are some factors that contribute to the likelihood of boarding. Children, and especially children with autism, often face significant delays in care. This is often because, depending on the level of severity, Children with autism may have impaired activities of daily living, like communicating and needing specialized staff and rooms to care for them. But unfortunately, many mental health institutions don't have these resources. And so optionality dwindles for autistic patients, and autism becomes a risk factor for boarding. Agitation, or aggressive behavior, is another risk factor and is common in situations of psychiatric emergencies. Ironically, Aggression is a common reason for a psychiatric hospitalization, but it is simultaneously a barrier to receiving psychiatric care. Often, the ED's solution for an agitated patient is to call a code gray, which ushers in security to help the clinical staff physically restrain the patient so then the nurse can inject that patient with strong medications. And if the patient sleeps for a couple hours or gets snowed, 
which is hospital slang for getting knocked out by a neuroleptic drug, then at least the staff and patient is safe. But at the same time, two-thirds of staph injuries are usually sustained while restraining the patient. Alcohol intoxication and diagnostic testing are also major factors that lead to prolonged boarding times. In one study of five EDs, patients with a positive toxicology screen for alcohol boarded for more than six hours longer than patients with a negative screen. For those of us who have either worked in the ED or have been patients in the ED, this pretty much sums up the testing experience. Getting a urine test or blood work doesn't always happen in a couple of minutes. It could often take 30 minutes to, like you mentioned, several hours to administer the test, send it off to the hospital lab, and get it processed. And you also have to factor in the priority of the lab. Nurses are busy people, and when multiple trauma codes come into the hospital at once, it's not unusual for a test like a COVID swap to get delayed, for a patient who needs a negative test result to be admitted to the psychiatric unit. And it's interesting because we both learned about the context of boarding through COVID and saw how a COVID-positive status could really impact the patient's care trajectory. I worked as a clinical research assistant at a pediatric ED hospital in Metro Atlanta during peak pandemic months. During one of my shifts, a teenager was admitted to the ED with suicidal ideation, and the doctor decided to admit her to an inpatient psychiatric unit. But she was COVID-positive. She waited for seven days in the ED until she tested negative for COVID and could begin the bed-finding process. Even Karen and her son had several of their boarding experiences during peak pandemic months, when access to behavioral health services in Massachusetts was exceptionally low. Her COVID mental health boarding experience was where we started our research. We had seen firsthand how psychiatric patients experienced care much differently than non-psychiatric patients. And so together, we started to ask the question, why? So far, we've walked through each step in the ED, from triage to the decision to admit a patient for inpatient psychiatric care. And we've learned that there are a series of risk factors that extend the patient's stay in the ED, which just adds to the boarding. Dr. Patel shared two solutions to improve the process. One, starting at the triage stage in the ED, and one for when the patient leaves the ED. Let's actually start at the end first. In addition to working in the ED, Dr. Patel is also the medical director of Impact DC's asthma program, which provides an intensive follow-up after a child's ED visit for an asthma attack. So she posed the question, what if we follow the same approach for mental health? Let's hear from Dr. Patel about what intensive ED follow-up includes. We do risk screening for uh, social determinants of health, kind of understanding what the social needs are. We involve lawyers. We involve the landlords if we need, trying to fix all the problems that ended up bringing them into the emergency department so they don't come back. Very similarly, I know asthma is a much simpler problem than mental health, but very similarly, I think we can do better, essentially, with these patients. Dr. Patel is advocating for this intensive mental health outpatient clinic for two reasons. One, Creating these clinics centered around social determinants of health has proven successful. And two, these conversations cannot happen in the ED. There is simply no time. We can't just discharge them back to care. I think we need this like very intense, hyper-intense focus. Like, I'm going to call you in two weeks. We're going to hook you up with a care coordinator. What else do you need? Like, maybe it's your school. Maybe you don't connect with your therapist. Maybe you need another therapist. But there's no time in the emergency department to get into all that, right? 
Creating outpatient mental health clinics is one of the solutions Dr. Patel shared. The other solution is focused on a comprehensive risk screening tool for all patients who arrive in the emergency room at the triage stage. This tool is called CASI. Dr. Patel described it as a computerized adaptive screening tool that basically works as an iPad of questions that a patient fills out at the start of their visit. And CASI is very efficient and precise in determining the three-month suicide risk of that patient. So it helps physicians understand how to better treat the patient in the moment and also for follow-up. Because the CASI screening takes very little time, it makes it very useful in settings like the emergency department. It is easy to incorporate into the workflow and triage or could be embedded in the EMR so that even if a patient comes in for a vague complaint like abdominal pain, Dr. Patel could easily see what their suicide risk was. And the goal is for Cassie to be a universal screening tool. You come in for abdominal pain, you get Cassie. You come in for a broken bone, you get Cassie. For mental health, universal screening is especially important because increasingly large proportions of people struggling with mental illnesses do not receive mental health treatment. And while a mental health emergency like suicidal ideation is different from a heart attack, it's just as life-threatening. Here's Dr. Patel on why we should implement universal screening in the ED. 40% of completed suicides never had a mental health evaluation. And therefore, we know there are children that if we could bring them in and facilitate longitudinal treatment linkage earlier, we could really decrease mortality from suicide. It's the second leading cause of death in children um, and adolescents. The rates since 2000 in kids ages 12 through 17 have increased by 60%. So I think the epidemiology supports that there is, it's a huge problem. And if we really just focus on this small group, we're going to be missing a little less than half, which is too many, I think, to miss. And one could say, you know, it's preventable. You know, it's a preventable, treatable disease that we could actually really help patients. Universal screening helps identify patterns so Dr. Patel can get a global sense of the risk to their patient population, which in turn identifies resource mismanagement and even identifies pockets of providers who may need additional training. A positive downstream effect is that the number of free beds rises. With preventative tools like universal screening and accessible outpatient clinics, we can declutter emergency departments and improve the boarding crisis. But there's a caveat. If we employ universal screening, we must also be prepared for the potential to identify more risk. More patients in crisis, more patients who need referrals, more patients who need school-based services. And as we know, hospitals across the United States already have a shortage of psychiatric beds, which all boils down to the fundamental issue. The shortage of inpatient psychiatric beds. Yes, there are a lot of problems in the ED, and there are still areas to improve. But the real bottleneck is the lack of inpatient beds that's stopping patients from moving to their next point of care the inpatient psychiatric unit. So naturally, we made an episode about it. Up next, the inception of our crisis and the lack of beds. Today's episode demonstrated that boarding is a result of a myriad of issues, like the lack of psychiatric specialists and treatment options both in and outside the ED. There are also risk factors that may extend a patient's stay, like the use of restraints, lack of insurance, age, and special needs. But one of the most obvious factors is a limited number of psychiatric beds to begin with. 
To understand the limited capacity of our mental health care system, we actually have to go back 100 years in time. In next week's episode, we will investigate why the mental health care system is the way it is, from presidents and policymakers who built the modern-day system in ways that left lasting legacies and gaping holes. This episode was created by Avni Kulkarni and me, with theme music from Tommy Scanlon. A special thanks to Jeff Byers, Sarah Kolk, and Patty Sweet for their guidance throughout the series. If you would like to learn more about any of the topics we covered in this episode, please check out our show notes for links to more resources and ways to get involved.